Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love from God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed in testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Thanks so much, Heidi. Well, if you have a Bible in front of you, or an app on your phone in front of you, keep it open. We're going to be referring to it as we look at this um, great passage together in 1 John. Now, twice in the last month, someone has said to Hannah, my wife, I wish I could believe. I wish I could be like you. I wish I had your faith. Maybe that's something that you've heard someone say to you or something that you've said to someone else. And I always find it a very interesting thing to think about, that that phrase, I wish I had your faith. It seems to me to imply two things. One, that there is something beneficial about being a Christian. There's something attractive about it. It it can't be like, you know, entirely stupid without any upside. People think at least, oh, there's, there's got to be something about it that's worth holding on to there. Some benefit. One of the two people who said this to Hannah, um, we, we suspect it was the community aspect of being a Christian, being able to be connected to others and be part of um, home groups and the such. So that's the first thing it implies. The second thing I think it implies is that though there may be some advantage to believing in Jesus, in the end, you just can't get past that barrier. I wish I could believe, but, but I can't. Some of you may know who David Baddiel is. Um, he's a comedian. He's a writer. He co-wrote the song Three Lions on the Shirt um, for the England football team. So um, you've got him to blame for the phrase, it's coming home, that you hear at every competition that England take part in every few years. So David Baddiel is Jewish. He's also a firm atheist, and he's just come out with a book called The God Desire. And in it, he's trying to wrestle with this idea of why it is that people believe in God or why they're Christians or, or hold to any other religious belief. And it's troubled him in the past, being an atheist and seeing this. Some of his best friends, people who he respects, um, even his own heroes, have been believers. So Frank Skinner is another comedian. He wrote three lines on a shirt with Frank Skinner. Frank Skinner is a Catholic. And David Baddiel has kind of been surprised and almost troubled by these fairly intelligent people who've been believers. Now, he's come to understand that there is something about the Christian faith which is attractive. 
having hope, for example. Nevertheless, for him, he doesn't think he'll ever believe. He's fairly certain in his convictions, even though at some level he thinks or wishes that he was wrong. And this all leads us to the question, why should we believe in Jesus? Why? Why should we do it? And when I say believe, I I, I don't mean we should believe in Jesus like we believe that two plus two equals four. It's more than just a proposition or a statement that we hold to. To believe in Jesus in the Bible means to trust in Jesus, to, to bank on him and who he is and what he's done. To be able to lean the weight of your life on him. Why do it? This is a question that John answers in our passage today. He talks about the reasons why we should believe in Jesus, but also the the benefits of believing in Jesus. Although benefits, it kind of makes it sound like you're signing up for a Tesco club card or something. It's a bit more than that. Now, you might think that if you're a Christian and fairly solid in your faith this morning, you can kind of switch off because you've already chosen to believe in Jesus. And to you, I would remind you that John is writing not first and foremost to people who are not Christians, to those outside the church. He's writing to those inside the church. So he thinks we do need to know and think about why we believe in Christ. Whether we are Christians this morning or whether we are not, we need to think about this topic, even though it seems like an obvious question. So why should we believe in Jesus? Firstly, John shows us the fruit of believing, the fruit of believing, that as we believe in Christ, it results in things in our lives. Look down at verses 1 to 5 with me. John links three themes that have been prominent in his letter so far. Belief, love, and obedience. Belief, love, and obedience. Belief. A true Christian must believe the right things about who Jesus is, that he's fully God and fully man, God in the flesh, that he came to die and rise again for our sins. True Christians believe the right things. But true Christians also love. We love God and we love others, in particular other Christians who are in our community. This is belief and love and also obedience A true Christian seeks to keep God's commands. They are important to him or her. And here, in verses 1 to 3, look at how all of these things go together. So verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. Do you see, belief, love, obedience, they're intertwined. They're inseparable, kind of fused together. You cannot have one without the other. If you believe in Jesus, it will result in love for God and for others and obedience. And this is important for us to grasp because it is sometimes possible for Christians to neglect one of those three So some of us neglect the love for other Christians bit. And so for for these sorts of people, they might see their faith as very personal. It's a personal faith. 
They might do a lot of reading about Jesus, uh, a lot of personal study. Um, They will try to obey God, although that will often look like kind of a truncated view of obedience that's just related to what we could call personal morality. We make sure we don't swear, we don't break the law, we try and have a quiet time, we try and kind of not fall into whatever temptations we might face. But for whatever reason, this person will not heavily invest in other Christians. Community is not actually a priority for them. They won't put themselves out for other believers at church. If they go to church, John would say, this is unhealthy. Others will neglect obedience. So they would say that they love and trust Jesus. You'll see them at church every Sunday. They may be at the socials and home groups. They enjoy hanging out with their church family. But they won't make the efforts to obey God's teaching in their lives. Law-keeping will just feel a little bit legalistic. After all, Christianity is about relationship. It's not about rules, which, by the way, is true, but often misunderstood. Again, John would say this is unhealthy. Faith, love, and obedience are inseparable. You can't get a bit of paper between the three. They reinforce each other. Verse 2 is a great example of this. Look at verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. That's a bit of a strange statement, isn't it? This is how we know we love the children of God. This is how we know we love other Christians. Surely we know what it means to be loving. Like most people grasp that, don't we? We be gentle to people. We care for them. We put ourselves out for them. We're generous towards them. Surely everyone knows this. But it's as if God is saying, actually, you only truly love other people if you keep God's commands. Which helps us see that there are actually false ideas of what love looks like. And we actually need God's commands and his way of living to know what true love is. You see, in our culture, for example, it's considered loving to support people in their independence and freedom to make their own lifestyle choices. And that can be good, but it is not always good. Christians can't always sign up to the mantra of you do you that our culture often says. For example, if you see me using my money in a certain way, biblically speaking, that may be unhealthy, although culturally it might seem completely fine. But to love me may mean you confronting me about that. Others might see that as judgy, not loving. But love will mean we care for others in a way that, in certain times, gently, we confront them about certain behaviors in their life. Do you see what I mean? It's not actually always easy to know what it means to love another person. And we can't just assume it's this neutral thing that everybody grasps and understands. And so John is saying we can love other people more accurately when we know what God says and we try and keep his commands. So that's just an example of how these three are intertwined. So let's, let's back up. What are the results of believing in Jesus? We naturally will love others and we will obey. We will obey God. They will all three come together. And John has one more particular fruit in mind. 
Look in verse 3. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. A Christian who believes in Christ overcomes the world. What does that mean? Well, it's not about seeing people outside of the church as enemies to be conquered. Let's think about what the world means in John's terminology. The world kind of sums up everything that is against God. Every attitude, every, every belief, every spiritual power. So simply to overcome the world means to live a godly life. To live God's way instead of our way. To counter sinful habits with healthy, godly habits. To be able, in some way, to stand against the tidal wave of temptations that come and tempt us to live in a way that doesn't honor Jesus. Where we're tempted to be selfish or to be lazy or to grumble. Now, in one sense, our faith has already overcome the world. You notice that at the end of verse 4? By trusting in Jesus, we are, as it were, on the winning side. But it also overcomes the world in the here and now. What John is saying is that every small little moment of obedience in our lives is a victory. It's a resistance against sin and is a positive thing. And how can we do this? Well, we have power to do it because, verse 3, we are born of God and Jesus' commands are not burdensome. Because Christians are born of God, we are given power through the Holy Spirit to be changed in a way that we could never be changed before. To live a life that honors God that we could never do before. And so Jesus' commands are not burdensome. Not because they're easy. They're not easy. But because we see them as life-giving. And bit by bit, we're able to change and love God more. And this is in the small things of life the micro decisions that help us shift one degree towards something that's godly as opposed to something that, that isn't. And, and these little decisions overcome the world. When you control your tongue in an argument, and instead of escalating um, what's happening in that conflict, you say, look, let's, let's calm this down. I'm sorry. I've gone too far. Can we start again here? That overcomes the world. When you're speaking to a visitor at church that you have, like, no connection with, and you're like, I don't, I don't even know how we're going to kind of carry on this conversation. I'd rather speak to my friend or I can look over their shoulder and they're at the back. But when you give them a bit of dignity and time in order to welcome them and serve them, that overcomes the world. When you're tempted to indulge in an addiction, and, and just in one moment you say, no, I'm not going to do this. Even though you know you'll probably fall to that temptation again in the future. In that moment, you overcome the world. It's the small things, but they're like military victories. Every time we make a small step of obedience with God's power, it's like we, we drag the new creation forward into this life, bit by bit. 
And what John is saying is here, those who believe in Jesus can change. We can change. We don't have to be enslaved to the same habits and negative patterns in our lives. We can see ourselves become different. And so this is the fruit of believing in Jesus. Those who trust in Christ, they love, they obey, and they change. That's the fruit. Okay, so we've seen that belief in Jesus has actual results in our lives. But why should we believe? What basis do we have for trusting in Jesus? So secondly, let's look at the grounds for believing in verses 6 to 9. Now in these verses, John tells us that there are three things that are like witnesses in a court that tell us who Jesus is. They testify. Verse 7, three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And verse 6 begins like this. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. What does this mean, water and blood? Well, there's a lot of discussion over these verses, but it seems most likely that the water is a reference to Jesus' baptism, and the blood is a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. And you'll notice that John feels the need to emphasize the blood, verse 6. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And so it seems that there were false teachers at the time that would deny that Jesus died in some way. And there are records we have of teachings around this time that said that there were basically two persons, Jesus the man and Christ, who is like God or a spirit. And what happened was, at Jesus' baptism, Christ comes upon Jesus, and then just before Jesus dies, Christ kind of comes off again. And so it's just Jesus as a man um, without any kind of relation to divinity who, who dies. But John says, no, Jesus came by water and by blood. That is, Jesus Christ is one person, as we've seen, both God and man, fully God, fully man. And this person, Jesus Christ, was baptized in solidarity with us, and he died a sacrificial death for his people. And John says that the water and the blood, they testify to who Jesus is. How do they do that? Well, if you know the stories about Jesus' death and his baptism, you'll know that there are supernatural occurrences that happen at both. So if you think about the baptism, Mark 1 records this. It says that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and there is a voice from heaven. And God himself, the Father, speaks You are my son, who I love. With you, I am well pleased. So at the baptism, at this public event, Jesus is um, identified and declared to be God's son. Not just a normal man. He's God in the flesh. And what about Jesus' death? Well, all sorts of things happen, don't they? A curtain is torn in two. There is darkness in the middle of the day. An earthquake A Roman centurion sees Jesus die and he says, well, surely this is the Son of God. So both Jesus' baptism and his death proclaim, declare something about who he is and what he has done. 
And these events were public, people were there, lots of people saw and witnessed. So Jesus says that these two things, the water and the blood, testify. The third witness is the Holy Spirit, verse 6. It's the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. How does the Holy Spirit testify? Well, he enabled the apostles to write the words of Scripture that we have, including the accounts about Jesus' baptism and death. But he also testifies to us subjectively in our hearts. He wakes us up to see who Jesus is. As we read the Bible and we see these accounts about Christ, we think, this is actually true. This actually happened. Jesus is Lord. And so together we have three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, which are God's testimony, verse 9, that he has given about his Son. Now at this point you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but I wasn't at the baptism of Jesus. I wasn't at his crucifixion either. That was 2,000 years ago. All the accounts we have of this are from the Bible. And so this kind of boils down to whether the Bible is true, which is correct. Now, I want to be clear. Christianity is very rational and reasonable. There are plenty of good arguments out there that testify to, the, to its truth. So, for example, there's the worldview argument, okay? The fact that Christianity has the best explanatory power for what we see in the world. We see great beauty in the world. We see great suffering. We see that humankind are capable of um, wonderful things, but also cruelty. How do we take account of these things? Well, a Christian worldview does so really well. Christianity can ground the existence of morality. We, we see that there really is good and evil, and that good is not just defined by whoever is in power or whoever has the most votes. It seems to transcend our own opinions. How can they exist in a world where there's just matter and motion? Well, a personal God, who is a lawgiver, makes sense of morals. What about things like um, physical laws of nature, which are consistent? The reality of abstract concepts like numbers that are consistent. Again, in a, in a, a universe of chaos and matter and motion without any purpose, those things are hard to account for. A belief in God can. What about Christianity in particular? Well, there's, there's lots of um, arguments and evidence. One thing is that which has been kind of articulated uh, more recently, is that the things that Western people hold most dearly only kind of emerge out of Christian soil. What do, we, what do we care about in our culture? We care about equality. We care about charity. We care about looking after the weak instead of exploiting them. We believe in things like human rights. Now, many scholars are noticing that these things don't just pop out of nowhere. Neither have they always been agreed on or believed by people universally and throughout history. They have only arrived, particularly in the West, because of the influence of Christianity, and that has in turn influenced the whole world. You know, prior to Christianity, in the Roman and Greek worlds, there was no real category for looking after the weak. It was all about who was most strong, and if you're atop of the social hierarchy, you get to do what you want and exploit anyone who's beneath you. That's how it worked. 
but the things that we hold most dearly, even those of us who are secular and don't have any belief, actually arise through the influence of Christianity. There's evidence for the reliability of the Bible. If you look at the manuscript evidence for the New Testament compared to any work of ancient history that we have, the numbers are staggering. You should look into it. Overwhelmingly more evidence for manuscripts than any other ancient document. And then, of course, there's the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. We're going to be having an event on this um, in a month or so. There's lots of good historical evidence for the fact that the only thing that accounts for what we know about what happened historically around Jesus' death is that he rose again. Lots of things to look into there. Those are just some lines of inquiry. There's plenty of other evidence and arguments. And what, it, what all that shows is like, you don't have to leave your brain at the door to become a Christian. It's inherently rational and reasonable. But here's the thing. Ultimately, the grounds for believing in Christ do not rest in any of those things. God does not expect you to know about any of them. And you do not have less warrant for being a Christian if you don't know about any of the manuscript evidence or other arguments for God. God has testified, and he testifies about his son in Scripture and through the work of his Holy Spirit. And those are the final grounds. It seems very weak, doesn't it? That this, this is finally our ground for believing in Jesus. Documents that were finished around 2,000 years but were compiled over multiple thousands of years by multiple authors. It seems very weak. And yet this is how God has chosen to speak And this is what the Holy Spirit uses to convince us that it is true. There is a sense, ultimately, in which Scripture is self-authenticating. Because there is no higher authority to go to apart from God's words. And John's plea for us is that we take God's testimony about Jesus seriously. Look at verse 9. We accept human testimony... We believe what other people tell us all the time. Should we not listen to what God says through his word? What does this mean for us now then? It means that as God's word is preached, as you read it, God is testifying to his son. He is doing so now. He's like, here is Jesus. Hear about him. We hear that the The Lord Jesus is the divine Son of God, that he has died and risen again. God is speaking now. These are the grounds for belief. You know, you may have been to church before, many many times, or perhaps this is your first week, I have no idea. And you may actually, there may be something in you as you, you hear the scriptures read, preached, Week on week, or even for the first time, there might be something in you that thinks, you know, maybe this is actually right. Maybe Jesus is the Lord. Maybe this Christianity stuff is actually true. Well, if you have that sense, perhaps God is speaking to you through his Holy Spirit. Don't ignore or quench that feeling. Please press into it. Find out more. You may be someone who wants to believe but does not feel convinced 
You don't have that internal assurance. And if that's you, I would encourage you, keep looking. Keep praying that God would show you his truth. Because this is how God testifies to the, to the truth of Jesus. We believe and we have grounds for that belief because of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit. Finally, why does this matter so much? Let's look at verses 10 to 12 in the importance of believing. The importance of believing. Whether we believe in Jesus or not is not a small matter. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they've not believed the testimony God has given about his son. Whether we put our trust in Jesus or not, it's not a matter of preference. It's not like me choosing to buy a Mars bar over a Twix. God is testifying to the truth about Jesus. If we do not believe in that testimony, then logically we make God out to be a liar And we can do that aggressively or we can do that politely. We can be aggressive and we can say, Christianity is rubbish, isn't it? Nonsense for idiots. Or you can do it politely. You can say, I wish I had your faith. But I don't. And if it's good for you, that's great. Both amount to the same thing. John would say, we make God out to be a liar. It not only dishonors Jesus himself, but his father, who longs to give a world his son as their hope. But the stakes in terms of whether we believe Jesus or not are spelled out most clearly in verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. And so, John says, that belief in Jesus is a matter of life and death. You see, when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about a guy, just some random guy, or a good guy, or a teacher, or someone who could be, you know, compared in some way with anyone else who's ever lived. We are talking about someone the Bible says is our creator who has come in the flesh. That he is the owner of the entire universe and has made everything in it, including us. Colossians chapter 1 says that all things were made by him and for him. Everything exists for Jesus. We read in the Nicene Creed earlier that Christ came into the world for us. That's true. Perhaps it's more true to say that we came into the world for Christ. He is the source and the goal of all things. He rules all things. And we're made for him. Did you know he made you in your mother's womb? He formed you. He knows you personally and intimately. He's given you every good thing you enjoy whether you believe in him or not. And he sustains you at every moment. 
We as human beings have been created to know the Lord Jesus. That's what it is to be fully human. There's no other source of life. Life is, as John says, in God's Son. And that is life that we can enjoy in part now, but in whole for all eternity. And so if we do not have the Son, what is our alternative? We run around trying to find life in all sorts of places, and we find good things, whether it's family or vocation or whatever. But none of these things can help us eventually Because whatever it is, we all have to deal with a reality that we don't like thinking about, which is the reality of death. And though we try to push it out of our minds, death doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. About 400 years ago, the mathematician and Christian thinker, Blaise Pascal, put it in the most striking of terms. He talked about our life as being like a theater And he said, the last act is bloody, however fair the rest of the play. You know, most of us have experienced pain in our lives at some point or another. But even if we have the most wonderful life full of joy and value and meaning, it cannot last. The last act is always bloody. And deep down, we know this. We do know it. There are even little signs that pop up in our culture that remind us of this. You know, a couple of weeks back on TikTok, there was um, a number of videos uploaded by mostly middle-aged women who were crying after having put on the teenage filter on TikTok so their faces looked younger. And for them, it was an upsetting reminder of lost youth. One woman said this in her video, if you want to know why so many of us oldies are getting emotional over the teenage filter, it's because many of us were so busy just surviving that we never stopped to truly look ourselves in the eyes. It's like their youth passed them by and they never appreciated it and now it's gone. Of course, you know, filters and editing tools for um, social media photos abound. One poll suggested that 71% of women would never upload a photo to social media without editing it. This, this search for beauty, for youth, for vitality, is it not just another way of, of seeking life and to keep away the effects and reality of death and decay? And of course, this isn't just limited to women. Gym and fitness culture is a powerful influence on men and women alike. Seeking life and health in a well-toned and exercised body. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes all-encompassing, is it because we're trying to push away death? And it's not just through health or our appearance, through all sorts of things. We try to distract ourselves from the truth that we will get old We will go frail and we will die. The last act will be bloody, however fine the rest of the play. Oh, we need the Lord Jesus so much. We need his life. We need his hope. And yet that is given to us. Verse 11, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. 
it turns out that God's testimony is more than him just standing in a witness box talking to us. He has given us, given us the gift of the Lord Jesus. He's like, here, take him, know him, enjoy him. Jesus was sent to die and rise again for our sins so that we could have true life. He sees us in our plight, facing death. He endured his own bloody act on the cross, but rose again, taking all our sin and shame and doing away with it. He promises life beyond the grave today, hope, real life that lasts this temporary life here. And we can have true life because we can have the Son. He is the eternal maker of all, and the gospel says that we can have him as our friend We can have him as our brother. And there is no other way to experience true life. And so this is why we must believe in him. This is why we must see who he is and what he's done and put our trust in him. As we do so, we find the only kind of life that will truly matter. That is why we must believe in Christ and keep doing so. Belief in Jesus, it transforms our life. It enables us to change. There are grounds for doing so in his word and spirit. But most of all, we, we must do so because in him we'll find life. And if this is something in you that, that you, you feel is, you feel drawn to Jesus in some way, I would encourage you, don't, don't quench that down, don't suppress it. Find out more, look into things, pray, speak with someone here. Life is in Jesus and he's offered to every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, not only that you speak, but that you sent the Lord Jesus into this world to die for our sins, to bring us to himself and to yourself. Lord, help us to be changed by that belief. Help us to be not just believing, but loving and obeying. Help us to have trust in your written word, which you've given us your testimony. But Lord, most of all, give us life. Help us to enjoy life in in the Lord Jesus. For those of us who who do not yet know that life, may today be the day where you, you welcome them into your kingdom, into your family, and unite them with Christ. For his glory we pray. Amen.